today and then we'll look at that passage together. Our Father, we ask that as we come to your word together now, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, We can't quite remember what the day is, but it's 20 years this week since my wife Sarah arrived in Sydney to live permanently, which I think was a pretty good decision. Um, The first leg of her trip on the way uh, coming from Boston to Sydney was American Airlines Flight 11 from Boston to LA. Uh, It's weird that I remember the flight number and the only reason is because three months later that flight would be flown deliberately into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Two Januarys ago, Sarah and I walked around the World Trade Center site with a New York City firefighter who responded on that day, talking of the utter carnage, talking about the ongoing physical and psychological scars that he carries, the damaged lives, the lost loved ones, the utter terror. It's just one day in history. One place where evil became very visible all of a sudden. A reminder that there is a lot of evil in this world. It's not a difficult thing to demonstrate. There is a lot of good in this world. But as we look around, there is a lot of bad. And when you look at that bad, it isn't simply mistaken or misdirected or misconstrued or misfortune but there is actual evil in this world. Spiritual forces at work in opposition to God and his King Jesus and all his plans and purposes. There is a truth that the Bible reminds us of time and time again, that our humanity is deeply fallen and sinful. And if you've been here week on week, as Steve so helpfully summarised for us, we've been looking at the various facets of the cross of Jesus where he died for us and all that that means and all that it achieved. And if you've been listening week on week, you'd know that dealing with humanity's sin, our fallenness, the root of all evil, well, that has been the repeated theme week on week. But this week, we see that the achievement of the cross goes far beyond our own individual sin and far beyond even humanity's need for rescuing. Because while we are totally responsible, the Bible says, for our own sin, we are culpable for our rebellion against God, we are not alone in it. We face temptation from the outside of ourselves as well as from the inside of ourselves. We are pushed and prodded by factors beyond ourselves which are united against God and his kingdom. And we're reminded of that in the Anglican baptism service, one of my favourite things to be a part of. Uh, When we speak 
in the baptism service about the totality of those things in opposition to God as sin, the world and the devil. Our own sinful hearts and actions, the false values and structures and directions of the world and the schemes and activity of the devil and his cronies. That is a spiritual reality that the Bible reminds us of time and time again, even, I hadn't noticed till this morning, in our first Bible reading from 1 John 5. And so we're thinking this morning about the victory of the cross of Christ over evil. And we see that the cross is the place where Satan and all his evil powers, the evil powers of the cosmos, were categorically defeated by Jesus. Uh, Pete so helpfully talked about this last week when we looked at uh, reconciliation and the fact that at the cross God was reconciling all things to himself, not just reconciling Christians to himself, not just humanity, but the whole cosmos. Uh, This was to show the supremacy of Jesus, to bring all things under his feet, to show that Jesus is the one by whom and for whom all things were made, including the spiritual powers and authorities who set themselves up against him. And so God wants to make clear to us that the cross is so huge that even those spiritual powers are not beyond its reach. And so Jesus is to be seen and experienced as the all-supreme Saviour King that he truly is. So we want to ask this question this morning. What is the nature of Jesus' victory over evil? And how does that victory reach into our lives? So we're going to ask that question, what has Christ done? What is the victory that he's achieved? Uh, And when we're asking the question of what is it that Jesus has done, it makes sense to look in the Bible for the verbs used to speak about what Jesus has done. And I know this because Miss Parker, in year one, taught me that verbs are doing work. So what is it that Jesus has done in his death on the cross? And if you're remembering the Colin Buchanan song that kind of goes with our series, big words that end in shun, tell us what the Lord has done. Let's have a look at what the Lord has done. We're just going to look at six things, six verbs, all in verses 13 to 15. Six things of what Jesus has done to bring victory at the cross So have a look up at the screen, Colossians 2.13. The first thing that he did, he he forgave. Verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. That's what happens when Jesus dies on the cross. God graciously chooses not to count our sins against us while having every right to visit us with his justice and his righteous anger, he instead visits us with mercy and forgiveness. First one, he forgave. Second one, he cancelled. Verse 14. Verse 14. Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us 
and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He cancelled our legal indebtedness. The cross of Christ wipes out the massive IOU which stood against us, the debt that we owed to God because of our sinful rebellion against Him. Um, the picture that we have, this great illustration, I still think it's perfect, of what it is that the cross of Christ has done. When you think about you and all your sin that stands against you and is the barrier between you and God, that at the cross, Jesus takes that upon himself and he gets rid of it. That's a simple illustration. There's your debt that you owe God. It's the big barrier that stops you from knowing and enjoying God forever. Jesus takes it upon himself and he gets rid of it. We have a massive record of all the ways in which we've failed God and fallen short of his glory, broken his laws and rebelled against him. The whole thing is cancelled at the cross. What has he done? What was this bit when Jesus took it and got rid of it? He took it away. Verse 14, he forgave us all our sins having cancelled our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Uh, When the Romans would execute someone by crucifixion, they would nail above their head the crime for which they were being killed. Uh, The picture that we get here is that our IOU, our indebtedness, the debt that condemns us and for which we deserve to be crucified, well, that's nailed to the cross. That is the written indictment of Jesus. He was crucified not for his own sins, because he had none. He was crucified for our sins, and we have many. Maybe at this point you're thinking, okay, Ben, sounds good, but we've already done this. This is all sounding very familiar. There's nothing new here from the last month or so that we've been in this series. What does this forgiveness, the cancelling of our debt, what does that have to do with Jesus defeating evil powers? Well, verse 15 is where you start to see that the forgiveness of your sins is so much greater than simply your own standing before God. The forgiveness of your sins, when your sins are dealt with, it is the place at which the powers of Satan have been dealt with. Have a look at verse 15. Because it was... Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. How has he disarmed them? How does Jesus' cross disarm the powers and authorities? Well, he takes away their weapons. That's how you disarm anyone, isn't it? You take away their weapons. 
And what are the weapons of these powers and authorities? What is the weapon that Satan uses against God's people? Well, you know in Revelation chapter 12, what is Satan's name or his title? He is the accuser. Satan's great weapon that he uses against you is your debt that you owe God. Satan's weapon that he uses against you is your sin by which he can accuse you, by which he can point out before God all the ways in which you've failed and call um, for you to be condemned and left with him in the kingdom of darkness and not brought into the kingdom of light. Satan the accuser could stand in the presence of God and say, Ben Gray has done this And that shows that he is one of mine, he's not one of yours, he belongs to me, he doesn't belong to Jesus. Look at all these things that he's done. And what gives Satan's weapon of accusation power? Well, the fact that it's true. The fact that he's right. the record is clear that the evidence is there his accusation is accurate, it can be proven and because Satan is the father of lies and he is only and always wanting to deceive and the way that he works is that he takes that truth Ben Gray is a sinner he takes that truth and he twists it into a lie that seeks to convince me that all that means is that God is not for me. That I'm beyond hope. That I'm beyond God. And he seeks to convince me that I'm the only person who's going through what I'm going through. That there's no point talking to anyone else about my struggles. That it would probably be easier just to give up that I'm wasting my time being here, that no one would notice if I wasn't here, that Jesus maybe isn't worth it. Satan takes the truth of our own sinfulness and he twists it against us to accuse us and to try to convince us that we're beyond God, that we're beyond hope in this world. But at the cross, God takes that weapon of the debt of my sin and he wipes it clean and he throws it away. He removes it and he gets rid of it and he does it forever. Disarming Satan and taking away his chief weapon of accusation. So totally have our sins been dealt with. So pure is the righteousness that Christ gives us. So truly and totally have we been united to him by faith that Satan is left with nothing. He's left standing there with nothing. 
nothing to say against you if you are in Jesus, nothing to accuse you of if your sins have been dealt with at the cross. He has nothing by which to claim you for himself and his cronies and himself and, and Satan himself have been disarmed. I think often when we think about Jesus and Satan, we think about some heavyweight kind of boxing match. And we think about Jesus and Satan stepping into the ring and going toe to toe. And you know, you could put a bet each way. There's no battle royale when it comes to Jesus' victory over Satan. Jesus simply goes to the cross where he bears our sin and gets rid of it and so leaves Satan with absolutely nothing by which he can accuse us. And so now when Satan wants to accuse you, when he tempts you to despair when he reminds you of the guilt within, as the great hymn says, upward you look and see him there, Jesus, who made an end to all your sin. And you're reminded that you don't have to give up and that you shouldn't despair and that you shouldn't isolate yourself and allow Satan to accuse you because his accusation is a lie. When he condemns you as beyond hope and beyond grace and beyond the reach of the cross, that's a lie. Because Jesus died for you. The accusation is a lie because the cross is true. The cross is the objective grounds upon which to say that by trusting in Jesus and his cross, you are alive with him and all of his righteousness and none of your guilt before God. So when Satan tempts you to think that you're beyond God's grace, you can objectively know that because of the cross, the face of your heavenly Father is turned towards you in love, not in judgment. So the point is that God has cancelled our debt that stood against us in order to forgive our sins. And by doing that, he has robbed Satan of all his weapons. He has triumphed over them by the cross. And taking away their power like that means that the cross has publicly shamed them. Have a look at verse 15 again. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. At the crucifixion, those powers and authorities thought that they had won. By all appearances, the earthly enemies of Jesus and the evil spiritual enemies of God's kingdom, they thought they had defeated him and ended Jesus' rule. But in God's sovereign wisdom and plan, the crucified Christ is also the conquering Christ. The cross is Christ's chariot of victory. And so by disarming them as he did at the cross, Jesus has publicly humiliated them. The image is a profound one that he's he's stripped them naked and he's exposed them to the world. 
is how Peter O'Brien wrote it in his commentary. He wrote, God stripped the principalities and powers who had kept us in their grip. He divested them of their dignity and their might, leading them in Christ in his triumphal procession. He humiliated them by showing that really they are just powerless powers. Jesus has demonstrated once and for all time in his victory at the cross, his utter supremacy, that he will hold first place in everything and that even those evil powers are under his sovereign rule. It's what we read in Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by him and for him. And he is the head over every power and authority, as it says in verse 10. And so the final final verb for us to think about is the triumph that Jesus has over these powers. They have been publicly shamed and triumphed over. For a first century reader, they would hear those words and they would instantly recognise the way a king would treat a defeated ruler. You can imagine a, a triumphant king who returns home after battle with a triumphal procession, having defeated uh, rulers and authorities. How do you announce that rule that conquest, that victory, how do you announce it? There's no TV news, there's no Twitter, there's no internet, there's no newspapers. How do you announce your victory? Well, as you return home in triumphal procession, you drag the defeated powers behind you. The cross of Christ is his chariot of victory by which he has won a decisive victory over Satan and he's made a public spectacle of them so that everyone would know. And in light of this victory that Jesus has won, what are the implications for us? How does it reach into our lives? Well, two final um, implications for us. That there is no condemnation and that we ought to put on the whole armour of God. There are our implications for this morning. That there is no condemnation and that there is an ongoing battle for us to fight. Hebrews chapter 2 says that since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The cross of Christ means there is no guilt in life and there is no fear in death. Death has been replaced with a sure and certain hope of eternal life. And so in Christ there is nothing that stands against you. No matter how hard Satan tries, he cannot touch you. He cannot snatch you out of Christ's hand. He cannot drag you into hell. The war has been won. 
Friends, the devil can huff and he can puff, but he cannot condemn you. Because of the cross, he and his cronies are powerless figures unable to harm the Christian who lives under the Lordship of Christ. But what then is the ongoing battle that Christians face? If those powers have been defeated, if they have been defeated but are not ended, if one day they will be thrown into the lake of fire but now they are still alive and active though powerless, what can they do? What is the battle? Years ago we were at a church that had on its property an old house that was riddled with asbestos. Uh, It was falling down. It had become a place of storage and, as you can imagine, a place that teenagers would hang out. It was totally unsafe and was eventually pulled down. But before it was torn down, it was declared unfit for use. And what do we call a building that's been declared unfit for use? Condemned. Satan knows that he can't condemn you to hell. And so he tries to condemn you by making you unfit for use. He can't stop you going to heaven, and so he tries to stop you being a useful Christian. He can't rob you of your forgiveness, and so he tries to rob you of your joy. He can't remove you from Jesus' hand and so he tries to distract you from your service to to him. He tries to keep you from your prayers. He tries to help you get attached to idols and keep you distant from your saviour Jesus. The Bible reminds us that these powers have been defeated but they are still at work, they are active and they are malevolent. They have been stripped of their authority but they are fighting a rearguard action against Christians in the world. So the Apostle Peter writes, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You need to be alert and not alarmed. Satan, the toothless lion, seeks to devour you but he's been disarmed which means he can really only slobber on you be aware of the conflict and be equipped with every divine power to stand against him and so how do we do that? 
Well, again, as Steve already prayed, we put on the armour of God. If there was no battle that Christians continued to face and needed to fight, Ephesians chapter 6 wouldn't say put on the armour of God, it might say put on the board shorts of God and take a seat by the pool. But he doesn't say that. He says put on the armour of God and take your stand against the devil. One writer with a fantastic name, his name is Snodgrass, says that evil rarely looks like evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. So the Bible finally this morning wants to remind us, wants to urge us, not that we need to to win the victory, Jesus has already done that, but we need to stand firm in his power by which he has already triumphed. Let me finish by reading Ephesians chapter 6. You might like to close your eyes and listen to this as a prayer. Finally, my brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Amen.